0: Good evening. If we haven't met yet, my name is Naman Cho. I'm one of the excuse me, assistant pastors here at our church. Uh, a privilege of mine to to be guiding us through God's Word this evening. Uh, if you're just joining us, we have been going through a sermon series on through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And, and going through each question, and we read about four questions tonight. And we're going to go over kind of a lot of the content of those four questions. And the timing of this is, is a little bit off. Uh, I was actually supposed to preach this sermon about five or six weeks ago. Uh, but my, my infant son had out of the plans. He, was, uh, he broke his leg uh, the night before I was supposed to preach. And, and sort of just got pushed back. So I thank you for your grace and allowing me to pick back up where we left off. Uh, a lot of the Advent and, and Christmas things that we saw of who Jesus is of who Christ is as our Redeemer. And now we'll see what exactly He redeemed us from. What is sin? What did He have to die for uh, in order that we may have eternal life? So that's where we find ourselves. And (coughs) let me read for us the the text that's printed there, from Genesis, starting in chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden and began to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In chapter 3 it says, <clears throat> Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they, had, they knew that they knew were naked, and they sewed thick leaves together and made themselves loincloths. <clears throat> and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God <clears throat> among the trees of the garden. Eight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. <clears throat> now, as we talk about uh, the difficult uh, topic of sin, I have on, on one hand I have an easy out in which the question that we just read through the catechism that says, "What is sin?" Is sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of God's law? So simply put, sin is breaking God's law. And I could stop the sermon right there. That's what sin is. But we know that from reading this lengthy narrative, sin is way more than just breaking God's law, right? There's a ton of things that lead up to the act itself of breaking God's law, of what God commanded them not to do. And there's also a huge fallout that happens afterwards. So sin is more than just a single act. I was was watching, not even watching, I was flipping through uh, the Netflix queue Uh, And and under the topic of like uh, the popular things that people are watching, like three of them uh, from the very top were uh, the Aaron Hernandez story. I don't know if you're familiar with the New England Patriots who was committed and convicted of murder. And then there was a a documentary series called The the Ted Bundy Case. And then another series on on O.J. Simpson. And I was thinking to myself, why are these in like the top... Uh, the popular queue of Netflix and I realize that as, as people are uh, hearing these stories in the news, whether in the past um, or hearing about them for the first time they're intrigued by the, the story behind it right, they, they, they've heard the news story, they know exactly what happened but they want to know who was Aaron Hernandez did he have any mental problems, who was O.J. Simpson, like what, what made these people tick, what like how do they process these things? And so, as people are viewing sin, as people are viewing murder, adultery, all these things, they want to know what's involved in the backstory. Right? What is actually going on in the hearts of those in these stories? And this is exactly what we get here in Genesis 2 and 3. We get the inner workings of, of the devil, we get the inner workings of what Eve and Adam must have been thinking. And we get more than just the act of eating the fruit itself, but we get everything that leads up to it and all the fallout that leads afterwards. (coughs) So tonight we'll discover a little bit more about sin in three different ways. If you've heard the expression that the temptation of sin exists in three different ways, we'll actually look through those three ways in this narrative. It is from the devil himself, (coughs) from our own flesh, and from the world. So in the devil himself, from the devil himself, from our own flesh and from the world. And so, our first point, if sin is breaking or transgressing of God's law, what exactly is the law that is in question here? And we read in chapter 2, verses 15 and 7, 15 through 17, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but here's the command. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. <clears throat> now, that seems pretty simple enough, right? God puts Adam in the garden, and he gives him one command. Like, here's your one job. This is, this is what you have to do. And so, that means up until this point, the word of God, God's commands, uh, are the source of life, life itself. When we will look back to Genesis 1 and in the beginning parts of Genesis 2, we see God, by His Word, just by speaking alone, that He created light from darkness. That there was a sun and the moon, that there was day and night, the sea and the sky, the birds of the air, the beasts of the ground, man and woman. Just by speaking, things come into existence. So God's Word is a very source of life. So that when God tells you to do something, when God gives you a command, that's a hint for you to say, this is pretty important. This is the source of life that I'm hearing this from. So that sets sets us up for chapter 3, the fall itself. And we see here this dialogue between the serpent and Eve going back and forth. And as the text says, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord God had made. And a lot of scholars and commentators and even other parts of scripture will affirm that this was Satan himself, the devil. And so he, in very subtle and very crafty ways, will start to begin to poke at Eve's understanding of God's word. Eve's understanding of what God had commanded them. And he starts very subtly, and he says, did God actually say, and and I'll stop there, did God actually say, and in those three words, to a person who had taken God's words, his commands as a very source of life, for the very first time in human history, introduces this doubt, this judgment. Like we put ourselves in a place where we can now judge God's word. We no longer have to take it for face value, but because Satan says, Did God actually say this? He's calling that into question. Do you see what he's doing there? And so he says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now we know if you reread there, I, I purposely placed chapter 2, 15, and 17 there. That's not what God commanded. He said, You can eat of every tree in the garden. So right off the bat, Satan has it wrong. <clears throat> And the woman said to the serpent, (coughs) excuse me, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. And we'll stop there for a second. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. You may overlook it very quickly, but she forgets every tree. She already forgets God's immense provisions. God has given them this entire garden to look after and keep and take food from. And she just says simply, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, sure. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you t- touch it, lest you die. Man, how much more did she say wrong in one sentence, right? So she says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden that is in the midst of the garden. That's not how God describes this tree. He says, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And how does Eve describe it? That is in the midst A general, sure, it's one of those trees over there. There's ambiguity to even what she thinks is a tree that she cannot eat from. Neither shall you touch it. Now she adds to God's law, right? God never said, don't touch the tree. He just said, don't eat from it. But Eve decides to add to God's law, even make make it a little bit stricter. A pastor friend of mine uh, had a had a great illustration to this point, where he was he was eating dinner with his family one day, or <coughs> excuse me, dinner was being prepared, and he had called to his youngest daughter, go go get your go upstairs and get your sisters and tell tell them that the dinner is ready, and they were in the the third floor, uh, and so what, what the youngest daughter decides to do is instead of going up to the stairs, like her dad had asked her to. She, from the bottom of the stairs, she just yells up, "Noel, Adeline, dinner, come down! But there's no response. Right? And so she tries one more time, Come down, dinner is ready! You better come now, or else! Very subtle. Her dad never said that they were going to be in trouble if they didn't come down in that moment, but she decided to say, if they don't come down now, there to be struggling. trouble. She made her father's words a little bit stricter than he actually intended it to be. In the same way, Eve makes God's command, almost his character, a little bit stricter than what he actually intended it to be. And lastly, lest you die. That's not what God says. He says, on the day that you eat of it, surely shall you die. Lest you die connotes this sort of Mm, maybe you might die. You probably will die, but you're not be sure. Surely you will die. So, in her first response, Eve is just God's word left and right. And so, <clears throat> their narrative continues. The serpent responds, "You shall not. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good." So Eve already begins to deviate from God's word. She diminishes it here. She adds to it a little bit there. She's twisting it here and there. And so here, flat out, Satan is contradictory to what God is saying. He is telling a lie. He is the great liar, the great accuser. And he is telling Eve the exact opposite of what God has commanded them to do. <clears throat> and what will happen if they eat of the fruit? Their eyes will be opened, implying that they were blinded before, that their eyes were closed before, and that they will be like God. Also implying that they were not like God before, but we know that man and woman were created in God's image. Eve had already forgotten that truth, that they were already like God. They were given this cultural mandate to keep the garden, to be the stewards of God's creation, and yet she finds this moment of weakness to say, am I lesser than what God had created me to be? And so we get a little bit of this inception of of rebellion, of temptation, almost as if God were something, God were holding something back from them and commanding them not to eat of this tree. (laughs) Uh, one other point that I want to make before we move on to how does this relate to us is that notice, uh, you, may, you may not know this is uh, when the Hebrew is used in this text, throughout the, the first two chapters of Genesis, God is used uh, the name God is used uh, as you may have heard of, of Yahweh the name that God uses for himself as the covenant God, the God who relates to mankind but throughout this dialogue that that the serpent and Eve just had is not Yahweh, it's Elohim. It's the more general designation for God. Just to say that, sure, God, this deity who is all-powerful and may have created it, but not Yahweh, the one who loves you, the one who entered into covenant with you, the one who gave you life, the one who gave you this garden to keep. And so, in a very subtle way, Satan introduces God by calling him Elohim, and Eve mimics he follows along as to cut the relational tie that they have with God. Do we have any Harry Potter fans in here? Very strong connection as to, from the very beginning of the series, is what do they call Voldemort? He who shall not be named, you know who. Almost to the point where like his evil is, is so great, you cannot even uh, attest to, to speaking it out loud. And Satan sees the same thing. God's goodness, his love, his mercy is so great that it's it's too good for him to to say, to utter. And and he wins by getting Eve to think of God in the same way of just Elohim, just maybe this deity figure and not this creator of the universe, this covenantal God who loves us. And so then as we look at this dialogue, of what's going on here Uh, the main thing is God's word, his commands are being attacked that's Satan's main goal attack God at his word because by doing so, what do you do? you twist, you distort it you add to it, you take away from it you take out some truth here you, you, you throw in some of your own truth there but by doing that, God's goodness is questioned by doing so, God's character is put into question. It's undermined. His character is being assassinated in this courtroom, if you will. And Eve is taking the bait. She begins to think in her own heart. Yeah, did, did he tell us not to eat of the tree? What, which tree was it again? We're not supposed to touch it though, right? I have, well, if I eat of it, I'll be like God. Satan is attacking (laughs) Eve at God's word. And now, this is not, (coughs) excuse me, this is not the act of sin itself. Sin has not actually been introduced into into the world, because what did we say before sin was, was the lack of conformity, or the transgression of God's word. So, they didn't actually disobey God's word yet. But we know that this is a very, very slippery slope. That even in our own lives, when hard times hit, when circumstances get a little bit too overwhelming, or really overwhelming, and we begin to ask ourselves, why is this happening to me? And that slowly comes to, why would God let this happen to me? Is God still good in the midst of hard times? Is God still good in the midst of this, this death of a family member? Is, is God still good And when my, my marriage is in shambles? Is God still good when my children are don't know the Lord? You see that very subtle step that we make is that we begin to question God's character. We begin to question <clears throat> His goodness. And we know that from the very beginning, everything that God created was good. And the ways that He sees us created in His image gives us immense value of life. So that as we think about sin, as we think about it from the attacks of Satan, these are the lies that are being told to us. That God's word isn't what it says it is, isn't what it's quite made up to be. And that is a lie. That's one of the things that I want us to walk away with is that even though Eve has yet to eat the fruit, (coughs) which is a very... (coughs) a tight line, a slippery slope that she's walking. So that as we continue in uh, verses 6, if you will. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. <clears throat> we'll stop right there. So we have this entire context of what, what just happened with the dialogue. And so now we, we, we're left with, in the story, as Satan has said all that he's needed to say. And Eve is almost standing there in front of the tree with the fruit in hand. <clears throat> and all of these thoughts are racing through her mind. God's word is being questioned. His character is being attacked. He's lost all credibility in her mind. To the point where now it says the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the very tree that God commanded them not to eat of, looks to her as good for fruit, as a delight to the eyes. God's command had now become insubstantial. It was minimized. Everything about God's, about breaking God's law, about breaking what God had commanded them not to do, actually seemed like the next natural thing to do. Like, if you follow the line of questioning that Satan had implemented from their dialogue, like, who wouldn't then at that point take the fruit? So Eve sees this fruit as good to eat. It's delightful. It's aesthetically pleasing. It's promising. (coughs) There was one time (coughs) where I was at Target, and uh, I share a lot of stories from Target. And it's remarkable of, of the, the human condition that you can see. But um, I was at Target, and they were in the toy section. There was a mother and a young boy, and, and surely, if, if you're going to take a young boy through a toy aisle, he's going to want something. So he picks something out, and he, he, he just bear hugs into his chest. Mom, can you get this for me? I really want this. And of course, she's like "No, honey, we'll 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 get we'll get it next time." It's like, no, mom. I really, really want this. Can you get this for me? So like, maybe for your birthday, we, we can talk about it. And so, in his last desperate plea, do you know what he said? He said, Mom, I need this. Right? And that's, that's the lie that we tell ourselves. When we think of sin, when we rationalize it in our mind, when we think of sin, uh, moving forward in sin, as, as good for food and aesthetically pleasing, we say, I actually need this this is something that I need in my life in this moment. So why wouldn't I go forward and deal with it? We forget God's character, we forget His words, and we forget what He's promised us. <coughs> and we say, I need this for myself. So then comes the declarative act of rebellion, the actual transgression of God's law, the actual eating of the fruit that God had commanded them not to. <coughs> so you may think that this then if this is where sin is introduced, if this is where the fall happens, that this is like the, the pinnacle of, of Satan's achievements. Right? He's, he's tempted Adam and Eve, the, the first of creation, to, to do this act that God had commanded him not to do, and now all of humanity is, is doomed because of it. But the way that the author describes it is, is almost anticlimactic. She said she took of the fruit and she ate it, and then she gave it to her husband and he ate it. Too. Can you hear how anticlimactic that sounds? Is Because everything leading up to it has, has led them down the slippery slope of, of forgetting God. Yes, the, the, the declarative, definitive act of actually eating the food is what introduces sin into it, but we know that all these other heart issues have wrapped up with it. <clears throat> the groundwork of sin was laid prior to this, so that sinning is, is more than just the act itself but the wrestling of the heart that leads up to it. And we've, we've been going through the sermon series in Matthew, uh, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, uh, <coughs> you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder, but if you harbor bitterness or hatred in your heart, you have murdered your brother in your heart. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but if you look at a woman lustfully, you have already committed adultery in her heart. <coughs> Eve has has put God into question in our own mind. So the inner workings of sin have already begun, and and now it leads up to this moment of of actually sinning, of actually eating of the fruit, to the point where this is what she wanted to do. Like, she felt good about doing this leading up to that moment. That's properly uh, depicted by a quotation that I put in the Reflection section, by Robert Ingersoll, who was a prominent uh, <coughs> Enlightenment time speaker who, who condoned a lot of rationalism and, and thought and kind of shunned uh, faith. He says, give me the storm and tempest of thought and action rather than a dead calm of ignorance and faith. Banish me from Eden when you will, but first let me eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. Right? I'd rather, you can banish me from the Garden of Eden, this this garden heavenly city, but let me at least have the knowledge that comes with it. To the point where sin for us (coughs) becomes a natural progression of, of what we want to do, of what we actually like to do. We'd much rather depend on our own knowledge our own self-sufficiency was so a big theme of the prayer conference Depending, uh, thinking that we're self-sufficient enough that we don't need to depend on God we don't need to pray we don't need to be in communion with God we don't need to be in communion with our brothers and sisters and this is a a very low state that that Adam and Eve were left in and I say Adam and Eve <coughs> as a sidebar um Whenever asks, anybody asks me about uh, complementarianism, uh, for those that are not familiar with the doctrine of, of, of complementarianism, of, of, of saying that there is a created order of, of having men lead uh, in very specific contexts, and that's the, the church and the home. So a lot of people take issue with that, and, and we can talk about it. Uh, I'd, I'd love to. But whenever <coughs> excuse me, anybody asks me about why do you believe in complementarianism, this is where I turn you know why? <clears throat> the law given in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, where God tells them what not to do, that was right before God gave them Eve. Right? So he gives this command, and then God says to Adam, It's not good for you to be alone, so I will give you a helper. And that's when he creates Eve. So Eve was actually not around chronologically in this book when God gave this command. So, what does that mean? That means it was Adam's responsibility to teach Eve what God's word is. He was supposed to lead her as her husband to say, this is God's word. Follow it to the T. What else is prominent is that <clears throat> Adam was actually present when this dialogue between the serpent and Eve was happening. How do we know? The text says, though, Eve gave some to her husband, and he ate it too, for he was with But also, grammatically, if we look at the Hebrew, whenever (coughs) the serpent is addressing Eve and says you, that's actually a plural you, acknowledging that he was speaking to both Adam and Eve. (coughs) Why do I bring this up? Is that in the moment of the dialogue, in the moment of this slippery slope that led them down to the actual act of sin, Adam, as the husband, as the leader of their marriage, should have stepped in way long before Eve got to where she was. As the husband, he had this responsibility to say, no, you are distorting God's word. That is not what he said. And I will together lead and protect my wife from these lies. So if you ever think that the fall was was ever just Eve's fault, you're mistaken. Adam was there and he has this responsibility to have stepped in to to feed his wife, <laughs> God's words, to leave her in these ways, so that when Adam eats the fruit, or when Eve eats the fruit for that matter, when they eat the, <coughs> eat the fruit, they're not deceived, they're not in this sort of trance or hypnotized, but they do so willingly. Adam ate, not just because Eve was able to convince him, but he saw this dialogue play out. All those inner workings of the heart that led to the downward act of sin, that was working in Adam's heart as well. And so when Adam took it, he did it for himself as well. And so now we see <coughs> creation distorted. Right? God had uh, created the world so that God, <coughs> man, would listen to God, and that the woman would listen to the the leading of her husband, and that animals, uh, the beasts of the air, the beasts of the field, would listen to men and women as the stewards of our creation, but as one commentator said, that was reversed, right? Eve listens to the serpent, the animal, Adam then listens to Eve, and nobody listens to God. This order, this way that God had created things to be is, is all out of whack. And now that they have actually eaten of the fruit and the sin has entered the world, it's, complete, <coughs> it's completely broken, the irony of the temptation that they want to be like God is that they already are and they forgot it. They were created in His image. They were created to have dominion over animals and yet they see the to take dominion over them. The creational order distorted. We were <coughs> sitting at our dinner table last night and <coughs> Isabel, who is uh, my daughter, she is about three and a half years old, she decided that, I'm going to help you clean the table today. I want to help. And what she did was, she took a pair of chopsticks and she jabbed at a piece of meat that we had eaten for dinner. It was like marinated, so it was a little bit sticky. And she began wiping the table with it. Right? And I was like, what are you doing? She said, like, I'm helping you clean. This is my cleaning stick. I I've, I've, I've fixed this cleaning stick, and I'm helping you clean. And, and my sort of... Uh, parts of me that are type A are, is like cringing, right? Because I could see her heart. She wanted so badly to help, but she was doing it in the wrong way. That something that was meant not for cleaning, but for food, uh, something that is actually meant kind of dirty, like that causes this mess, is now being used to clean things. Right? So that when we take God's creation, when we take God's good intentions and, and created order, and actually misuse them in the wrong ways, that actually makes it a lot worse. We, we see this, whether it's the use of sex, the use of money, the use of relationships. When these things begin to be used in ways that they're not created to be, when they're out of whack of what God's good intentions were, they actually make things a lot messier. So then when we see this definitive act <coughs> of the fruit in the eaten, everything is distorted. Everything is broken to the point now where we see the fallout. If you would read with me (coughs) verses 8 and follow. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And they heard the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound (coughs) of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? <clears throat> the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the man, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so, we've already acknowledged that sin is a heart issue. is, is something that, uh, that goes on in the inner workings of our heart that ultimately leads to the act of sin itself. and even beyond that sin has a repercussion to the world around us it's more than just this act of itself but it actually affects those around us so that when we sin we hurt the ones that are closest to us when we sin we create this culture and this world around us of brokenness of shame as we see of blame shifting of being expelled from God's presence they saw, they opened their eyes and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. <clears throat> Prior to this, there was no shame at all. It was full vulnerability. There was full openness. They had no scars, no warts, no moles that they wanted to hide. But they were walking freely, naked. Now they cringe at their own nakedness. Like we all have those dreams where those nightmares where we're like giving this presentation and, and we're like suddenly naked. right? I've had those dreams of Preaching. Thankfully, I'm not. (laughs) Almost to the point where the sound of God walking causes them to run and hide. Whereas before, the sound of God walking would have caused them to run towards and leap towards God their Father. This delusion that they had to hide from God, and that they they actually can't hide from God, how silly that is, is as we're just coming out of the book of Job, would have brought joy and eagerness and love before now brings dread and fear. So that when God asks him, why were you hiding? Instead of Adam owning up to his sins that I made a mistake, he said, I was scared. So I hid. He was more concerned with his fear and nakedness and shame than he was than the fact that he broke God's law. We live in a culture of shame. And how do we know this? Is that things that thrive, things that do well in this world are now mediums and and avenues for which allow us to hide our shame. Like when you think of uh, social media or things like that, (coughs) and why it does so well is that we're able to curate parts of our lives so that only the best parts show, right? Because we're ashamed of of showing this part of our life. We're ashamed of sharing a little bit about our our past. We're ashamed of, of showing our scars. We definitely live in a culture around us in shame. Uh, and also, we see this pattern of, of blame shifting. That the one of the fallouts of sin is that relationships are destroyed. And, and <clears throat> you may have heard this before that when God asked, like, what, what have you done? What does Adam say? He said, The woman whom you gave to me gave me the fruit tonight. First of all, he blames Eve. He doesn't own up to his own sin. But then he blames God. He says to the woman whom you gave to me caused me to do this. This is not my fault. And Eve says, the serpent deceived me and I, nobody is owning up to their sins. Everybody is a victim. So that leaves God responsible, apparently. And we know how absurd that is. And the biggest (coughs) repercussion, excuse me, the biggest fallout of this act of the fall is that they are now expelled from the garden. Right? They are expelled from the presence of God. God commanded and said, on the day of the it, you shall surely die. Well, Adam lived to be 930 years old. So surely, not on that day, he died, but spiritually, he was dead. <coughs> The casting out of the Garden of Eden introduces, inaugurates the spiritual death that God had promised. So that the ramifications of it is that they are no longer be able to be in the presence of God himself. And how do we see that today is something that I like to call <clears throat> the checkpoint syndrome, right? So wherever you are in life, or maybe wherever you were before, have you ever... Found yourself asking a question, so long as I have this or I reach this goal, then I think I'll be okay, or I, I think my life will start to get back on track. <clears throat> so long as I get these grades, you know, that'll set me up for the next step. So long as I get into this school or this college, I think I'll be set. So long as I get this job, this promotion, things are going to start to look up and, and look a lot better. So long as I can find this type of person, this relationship. So long as I can get married, I think I'll be <coughs> a little better. So long as these things happen for my kid. So long as I can set these things up for retirement. And as we progress further and further down the line, when when does that ever end? I've I've found myself in that position of like, okay, if I reach this point, then then I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to follow this pattern of sin anymore. <coughs> But the cure for this checkpoint syndrome is to realize that we need the presence of God. That we were created to be in God's presence. To commune with Him. So that not the next thing or the next five years or the next ten years will our our lives start to look up. But the very truth and reality that we live in the midst of God Himself is the very source of life. So that even in this narrative, we find God's grace. God approaches them in the cool of the day, in the garden, and he's looking for them. He says, where are you? That's a rhetorical question. God already knows what happened and what they did. And he's wanting to establish or reestablish this relational tie that has been broken. He's trying to coax out of them a confession so that they could see their sin and that they can come repentant. Surely you shall die on that day. And he actually clothes them before they're cast off from Eden. So that when we think about (coughs) sin, when we think about it as an attack from the devil, as we think about uh, uh, the temptation uh, within our own flesh, as we think about it as we're immersed in a world and a culture of brokenness, (coughs) hear this grace from Ephesians 2. And you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins. There's a spiritual death there again. In which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of power of the air. There's the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, the passions of our flesh, our own temptations, carrying out <coughs> <Here we go. coughs> the desires of the body and the mind, and are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There's culture, there's the world, Right after the fall, we don't see God scrap creation and and promise this death that was commanded. But we see God continuing to show grace. That he looks upon his creation and he says, I can redeem this. And I will redeem this. And that happens only and through Jesus Christ. So that even as we see the effects of sin today, even as we wrestle with it in our own hearts, even as we start to hear the lies of the devil attacking God at his word and, his cre- and in his character, and even as we live in a world that is uh, a culture that invites sin and in wrestling, we know that Christ, was, Christ had come to overcome this. He is our Redeemer in whom we find grace, in whom we're not left in the shambles of our shame or blame-shifting, or relational brokenness. So, I invite us to consider Christ, consider Jesus as the full presence of God. Let us pray.